platform listeners, it's Claudia here from Clayview. We've researched 50 UK retailers and found 80% could improve personalised product discovery. Find out how. Download our new e-commerce discovery report at clayview.com forward slash UK report. Hello and welcome back to the Replatform podcast. Thanks as always for tuning in. So today we are talking about making customer experience your competitive advantage with Martin Newman. So before I introduce Martin, although a lot of you will know him, I'm sure, uh, Martin's a consumer champion and founder of Customer Service Action. Check it out at customerserviceaction.com. He's focused on positive change for both consumers and brands and it's a really interesting proposition in the platform he's launched. He's also incredibly well-known and respected in the e-commerce and retail industries, brings a wealth of C-suite experience to the table today. He's been an e-commerce director for leading brands such as Ted Baker and Burberry, the advisory board member for companies like Wiggle, and founder and chairman of Practicology, a leading consultancy that many will have known and worked with. So actually, if I ran through his full background and accomplishments, we'd have no time to chat. So let me crack on. Uh, So welcome, Martin. How are you? I'm good, thank you, James. I very much appreciate that introduction. Makes me feel more important than I probably am, but I'm grateful for it nonetheless. Excellent. Cash in a brown paper bag. It's all fine. <laughs> um, I believe you've had your first jab, so uh, thank you for joining us, uh, despite probably having a few sniffles off the back of that. I have, yes. Um, something to do with my age, probably, and being mildly asthmatic. But anyway, I'm grateful nonetheless for getting bumped up the list. I wasn't expecting... Uh, to have it for a couple of months and I got a text at the weekend but um, yeah I felt a wee bit rough last night I thought I had a bit of a temperature and wasn't wasn't I was feeling a wee bit achy this morning but uh, I'm very glad to have had it and obviously glad to be on here today talking to you. Yeah and I appreciate you taking the time when when you're not 100% so let's uh, let's get on to the exciting bit so let's start off in your own words it'd be really useful for you to kind of position who you are and what you do especially in the context of the the customer first groups I think that's really interesting what you're doing now. Sure. So I suppose I've got a little bit of a portfolio in terms of how I approach, you know, work and what I do day to day. So things, the things that I work on tend to fall into sort of two or three buckets. So there's kind of me and my personal brand. I, you know, my ugly mug pops up now and again on BBC Sky, uh, those types of broadcast channels uh, as a talking head. Um, uh, You mentioned board advisory. So I have the privilege of being the non-exec chair of the retail arm of the Scouts. Uh, I chair the advisory board for a consumer products company called the Mayborn Group. Uh, I'm also a board advisor to ClearPay, leading buy now, pay later provider. Um, and, and, I, and I do some of that in a formal and informal capacity with other businesses as well. I've also just written my second book um, called The Power of Customer Experience, which comes out in May. So looking forward to that, doing the final edit on that at the moment. Um, But the main thing I'm focusing on kind of day to day is customer service action. So I set up this website about a year ago. Um, I'm trying to be a force for positive change, which you alluded to for both consumers and brands. So I kind of sit in the middle, I guess, between customers and the business itself. And I bring a lot of consumer insight and knowledge, partly based off my own experience, but more, more importantly these days, based off what customers actually share with us day in, day out, because they come on the platform and they tell us about the good and bad experiences that they've had with consumer-facing businesses. We connect them with the business, we encourage the business to do something about it, to resolve issues. Um, But moreover, moving forwards, the platform is a solution that we plan uh, to actually sell and hopefully brands will integrate into their own website to become the gateway for their customer service. 
Right. Um, and then, I mean, that sounds really interesting. Um, and I'll ask the first question. So kind of starting with the fundamentals, how do you think consumer behavior is changing? What are some of the trends you've seen? And then what is the implication on businesses around customer experience? Well, it's a good question to start with. I mean, uh, you know, obviously the pandemic has had a big impact on consumers and, you know, there's always this sort of conjecture over what's going to be a temporary shift and change in behaviour versus what will be permanent. Um, So maybe just calling off a couple of things there and what that means for businesses. Clearly, we've all been working from home. Those of us who are so fortunate enough to be working, we've all been working from home. Um, and, and, you know, I do think that's going to be a permanent shift. I don't think we'll be spending the whole week working at home, but those of us that are working for corporates will probably end up spending half the week in the house and half the week in the office. Um, and that obviously has a lot of implications, both in terms of, like, for example, if you were if you were previously or prior to the pandemic working in a major sort of conurbation city centre, that's going to have implications for the consumer outlets that would normally serve you on a day-to-day basis if you're only spending half your week going into the West End of London or wherever it happens to be. Then there's a demand, a a sort of shortage of demand issue there for for some of those businesses. Likewise, there's an uptick for um, local businesses who now have benefited in many cases from the fact that we've been, you know, staying locally and working locally. So I think that's got big implications. And we've obviously seen retailers pivot to use their stores more as fulfillment centres. So there's been a big you know, uplift and click and collect because consumers still want to engage with a retailer even when the stores are closed. And sometimes they feel more comfortable or they felt more comfortable that as a fulfillment model. Of course, that's been when we've not been in lockdown, lockdown three, the movie as we're currently in at the moment. Don't know about you, but I'm getting a bit bored with it, but it is what it is and we'll have to deal with it and hopefully we'll come out of it soon. Um, I think what's what's also interesting is we've seen a big uptick in consumers buying groceries online for the first time. So some people might or might not know that the percentage of grocery sales in terms of e-commerce prior to the pandemic as a percentage of total grocery was around about 6 or 7%, and it's now between 15 and 20%. So it's obviously grown significantly. Um, and I think you'll hear that myself and other, other industry analysts will predict that that percentage is likely to maintain. So, you know, we're not going to go back to 6 or 7%. That growth is going to, going to be there as a permanent change, which obviously has huge implications for the brands that are serving consumers and, and their cost to serve, you know, around grocery um, distribution. And obviously, you know, in other, non, in other non-essential retail categories, fashion, electronics, homewares and others, sportswear, for example, um, we've obviously seen a huge sustainable uptick in demand as well. So according to the Office of National Statistics, e-commerce was approximately 19% of total retail prior to the pandemic. And as of today, it's somewhere between 26 and 30%. So I predict we'll probably close the year on 28% of all retail being online. That might surprise people because a lot of people probably think it's higher. It's higher than that. And obviously during lockdown, it is higher than that. But when we come out, again, consumers can't wait to get back to, you know, physical retail, I believe, and and have that sort of more sort of hands-on experience of going into retail outlets, trying things on, and just getting out and about, particularly given that we've obviously all been locked locked up for a period of time. So that's those those are just some of the changes that I think we'll we'll find both sort of temporary and permanent as a result of what we've been through. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think I definitely fall into that bracket of uh, wanting to get back to um, 
yeah more kind of physical retail experience um so from talking to james before this episode uh he he mentioned that you're passionate about customer experience kind of being a a, a strategic issue um and he talked about kind of that um, needing to be represented at board level or leadership level. Um, why is that? And is that something that you agree with? 100%. Um, well, I, I personally think the only way you can really, truly get, you know, have a plan for the future that you can feel as a business gives you, you know, confidence in being a sustainably commercial, commercially successful business in the short, medium and long term is to be truly customer centric. So I tend to think of it less as customer experience and less just about customer service and the overarching theme for me is customer centricity. And that is a much more strategic outlook than customer experience. And I think one of the things of customer experience, just as a term, I think the reason why it doesn't tend to be talked about as much as it should around the board table at the moment is that many people think of it just purely in terms of, you know, the touch points, the actual physical experience that customers have. But to be a customer-centric business, you have to be doing lots of things well. You have to be empowering, you know, consumers with the right technology to enable them to engage the way they want to. You have to put your people at the heart of what you do and empower them to deliver the right experiences. Um, you know, you have to be socially responsible. You have to have a purpose. You have to demonstrate values. You know, these are massively important, particularly to younger consumers, Generation Z uh, and millennials. So it's a very strategic subject matter, but I think at the moment it's probably thought of more tactically, which is why it doesn't have the voice that it has at the board. And the cause and effect of that is that most businesses, almost every consumer business I can think of, when I talk to them and I ask them about you know, how they, how they view customer centricity or how they view customer service and experience, they view it as a cost center and not a profit center. And that in itself gives you a really good indication of, you know, how the business sees it. Because if it's treated as a cost center, then ultimately the business is probably going to end up making the wrong decisions. Because, for example, the board or the CEO might say you need to cut costs to the person running the contact center. So they start taking, they, they start removing, you know, headcount or they start removing technology or they don't invest in the right solutions. So you end up making the wrong decisions that ultimately have an even more negative impact on customer service. Whereas if you thought of it purely in terms of customer lifetime value, and that was your starting point, you said, right, I want you know my customers to be worth X over the next few years. Working back from that, what do I need to do in terms of customer experience, customer service, and customer centricity in order to deliver that? Yeah, that's a really nice, nice way of framing that. Actually, the other thing that the other way around, lifetime value is your starting point for CX. I like, I like the thing you said about power, empowering people as well across the business. There's a really good example I, I found a few years back from Zappos, like this pre when Amazon, pre Amazon yeah. buy now, where um, Tony Hazai, the the um, uh, the founder of it, basically set up a fifty dollar bonus scheme that employees could give to any of their one of their colleagues, they could do it once a month to reward exceptional customer service. And it didn't have to be approved by a manager. It was discretionary. And I, I think that is a brilliant example of how you empower people to take customer service seriously. Totally agree. And and what's interesting is you find that there's a direct sort of correlation, you know, between businesses that are truly customer centric, like Zappos and, you know, others. I mean, for example, I talk a lot that 
brand in the States called the Home Depot, which for people who don't know is sort of the, the B&Q, I guess, or bigger business probably, but the B&Q of uh, North America, you know, they, they trust their staff to give discounts of $50 to customers in store. So again, they're empowering them, you know, to help make sure they, they do the right thing in terms of service and that they actually convert customers and, they, and they're able to generate a sale. And the associates in their business are able to work with local organizations to give back to their communities. And one thing which I, I just love that they do is they support their colleagues and associates uh, financially. So whenever there's a financial emergency in someone's family, you know, the Home Depot support them. They also encourage further education and they offer to reimburse, you know, tuition costs, which I just think is brilliant. And if you look at their performance, you know, over the last five years, their share price has gone up 140%. So whilst they've had the odd glitch here and there, you know, there's been a very marked, sustainable increase in their commercial performance over that period. And I can give you lots and lots of examples of businesses like that who do this stuff well, who ultimately perform the best over, over a long period of time. Yeah, and another nice example. So let's look at the, the, the converse side to it. Like what happens if you don't focus or don't deliver good customer experience consistently? Um, and I think this is really important for people to understand. So what are some of the negative impacts that either you've seen directly when working with businesses or that you know of from, from uh, you know, uh, case studies of that? Well, one of the best examples of all time, uh, I'm sure you'll remember, um, is Volkswagen. I know they're a big business and, and not necessarily uh, not necess- necessarily reflective of smaller businesses, but it's a great example of how badly things can go wrong when you when you when you basically don't tell the truth. So you'll remember a number of years ago, I think it was back in 2015, they they essentially lied. They had been lying to customers for quite some time about their you know their catalytic converters and their their impact on the environment. Um, essentially, and, and their share price dropped off a cliff. And essentially, from 2015 to now, even though their share price has been recovering in the last couple of years, they're 35% down from where they were in 2015. Now, you know, is that because Volkswagen don't design cars that people want to buy anymore? I don't believe it is. I think what they did when they lied to people is that ultimately uh, people lost a lot of a lot of core Volkswagen fans and customers lost trust in them. And I think the minute you lose trust, uh, customers don't come back. So I think the negative the negative implications of, of poor customer experience or not being customer-centric, whether that's in the case of being VW and telling a mistruth to customers, or whether that's just you know not delivering the right experience in your physical store, or the last mile experience online being really poor, you know, when the delivery companies turn up and chuck your goods over the fence or leave them in a wheelie bin, you know, whatever it happens to be, it ultimately drives customer churn. You know, customers don't come back. And not only that, but when you deliver poor, poor service and poor experience, they go and tell others. And, and of course, these days, it's not just about word of mouth, which it was historically in, in consumer sectors. It's now word of web. So it's magnified because customers can amplify their issue with you very quickly on Twitter, on Facebook, and on, on Instagram and other social media channels. Before you know it, it's not just about my individual issue as a customer. I've gone and told 10,000 other people about it. So, you know, there's huge issues for businesses um, if they don't get this stuff right. 
Yeah, definitely. That that one about the delivery pass was made me chuckle because of the memes going around on social around Hermes and, and the number of times <laughs> when things are being yeah. chucked. And, and it, you're right. I mean, even if you're using a carrier, it's still part of your customer uh, experience framework because if they're delivering a poor service, it reflects badly on you as a brand. So you can't just dissociate yourselves from that. I think, if you don't mind me saying just, just quickly on that, I mean, we, you know, sorry to call them out, but, you know, we've had hundreds of complaints about Hermes on on our website you know they're definitely up there i think in in terms of you know lack of focus on customer service and you're absolutely right james you know from a brand owner perspective you know at the end of the day that last mile experience for some people is the first touch point they've actually had with your brand i mean okay they may have bought something online but it's the first physical touch point that they might have had with you and they don't care about the fact that it's a courier or someone else that's delivering the order. As far as they're concerned, their contract is with you, the brand owner. You know, whoever you happen to be, you're the brand that they that they you know purchased from, that gave their hard-earned cash to, and that last mile experience has an enormous implication on how they perceive you as a business and and, and whether you care or don't care about customer service. So it's massively, massively important. Yeah, I completely agree. And this is interesting because it leads on to the next question I've got, which is customer experience for a lot of people. When, I, when I've when i been listening to conversations with businesses is that people struggle to see it as like a tangible ROI case. They see it, as you said before, it's a cost centre. It's like, okay, we've got to have a call centre and we've got to respond to issues. They're not thinking about it the other way around. So can you give a bit of advice on what is a business case for investment? Have you got any like case studies or examples where people have actually found a positive reason to invest in this? Well, uh, you know, let me quote the Harvard Business Review who, you know, are uh, full of some very smart people who write some very smart points about, well, lots of different things um, about strategy and everything else. But, you know, just one quote that, uh, and it's actually, this comes from the guy who founded the Net Promoter Score, whose name, whose name escapes me right now that a 5% increase in customer retention leads to a 25 to 95% increase in profit. So there, there's some maths around this. You know, if you could just move the needle by 5% on customer retention, depending upon the category, you're looking at leading that leading to a 25 to 95% increase in profit. So there's a clear correlation in doing this well and what the commercial implications are for your business. And if you look at main, most of the businesses, in fact, probably all the businesses that have sadly gone to the wall in the last you know, few years and even over the pandemic, you know, why have they gone to the wall? There's lots of reasons. Some of them had too many stores. Some of them, some of them were too slow to sort of recognize the channel shift and what the implications of that were. You know, some of them just didn't deliver good enough service, good enough customer experience, or, or maybe even have a relevant enough product. All of it, at the end of the day, when you bring it back, it all comes back to customers and it all comes back to customer experience and, you know, a lack of understanding of consumer behaviour and how consumers want to engage with your business. So, I mean, the examples I gave you earlier of the brands that have got, you know, commercial, good commercial performance like Home Depot. In fact, I'll give you another example here. Here's a great, here's one of the best examples probably of all time of a business that understands how to leverage technology and deliver, you know, a better customer experience and democratize the experience of buying cars, Tesla, right? You probably remember, you know, when Tesla started opening up, opening up in shopping centers 
I remember kind of, you know, going to Brent Cross and seeing a Tesla store and thought, crikey, what's that all about? It did take me a bit of time to get my head around it. But of course, I realised that what they were doing is that, again, they were democratising the experience of buying a car. Because historically, as a consumer, you have to get to an out-of-town um, car dealership somewhere, which isn't necessarily the most convenient. Ultimately, you've got to go to them. What Tesla were doing is saying, no, we'll we'll bring it to you and we'll bring it to you in an environment that we know you're going to be in because that's more convenient for you. And by the way, when you want your Tesla serviced, you can also bring your Tesla to Brent Cross and we'll sort it out or we'll come and pick it up from you. So they've really thought through, you know, what was wrong with the traditional car buying experience and how might we do it more effectively. And guess what? You know, Tesla, as of yesterday, is valued at 805 billion dollars or four times that of Ford, General Motors and Volkswagen put together. It's crazy. Um, And of course, a lot of that is a bet in the future, you know, success and value of Tesla. But people are betting on them because of their customer centricity and their understanding of the changes that we're going to go through the move towards electric vehicles you know, the requirement to have a better customer experience when buying a car and during the lifetime ownership of that car. So, you know, whoever you look at, James, you know, I can, again, in fact, I'll cite you another example, Hotel Chocolat. You know, um, I talk about them. They have a, they have what they call a planet pledge. And so they pledge that 100% of their packaging um, will be compostable or reusable or recyclable by the end of this year. None of this kicking the can down the road till 2030 or 2050 that you see with a lot of brands. And since they listed on the stock market, you know, going back to sort of 2015, 2016, their share price is up 88%. And you just don't see this with brands that don't do this stuff well. So I think, you know, case study after case study of businesses that understand all the things it means to be customer-centric they just demonstrate, you know, great performance year after year and are definitely the most valuable businesses and the ones to, to back and bet if you fancy a flutter on the stock market. Great. And uh, you, you've obviously mentioned a few examples so far, um, Home Depot being one earlier than Tesla and now Hotel Chocolat. Yeah. Do you have any, um, I guess, smaller UK brands or retailers that you think are doing this particularly well? Uh, well, one of the businesses, I mean, they're, they're a medium-sized business, but Timson, um, you know, the, the, the family business where yeah. you can go and get your keys cut or your shoes rehealed. Um, some, of, some, some of the people listening to this today may have, may have walked by a Timson outlet and seen an A-board outside, excuse me, that says if you're unemployed and you need an outfit clean for an interview, we'll clean it for free. Now, you know, do they make any money from that? No. Um, they happen to own a dry cleaning business, right? So that's helpful. <clears throat> but what they're doing is they're giving back, you know, and they're, they're demonstrating an empathy um, with people in the local community. And they're just such a great business. They, they empower their frontline uh, employees to make decisions up to £250. So if something went wrong, you know, there's no need for the, the people that are running these outlets to have to go back to the head office and for you to wait as a customer for four or five days to get a decision about whether or not you're going to get a new pair of shoes because they, you know, because they happened to ruin them when they were rehealing them or whatever. They're empowered to make decisions. You may or may not know this, but they, they don't really have a middle management in that business. So you've got the family who run the business. 
You've also got some senior execs who sit around the board and, and run the business in an operating sense day to day. But then there's no middle management. So when it comes to them wanting to make change, to be agile, to pivot, or to just do things quickly, they're able to cascade that down to the people who are running their outlets literally the same day. And I just think they're such a great example of a business who understand what it means to be customer-centric, understand what it means to empower their people, understand what it means to be truly agile. Um, and as a result, you know, again, they're a business who are commercially successful year after year after year, you know, and it, there's a clear correlation. So I think anyone can do it. I mean, if I go, if I talk about a really small business, um, my my local Londis, which is a franchise uh, of the Londis business, but, you know, my local business, the, the couple who own that, um, who run that business, Vipo and Manoli, they've become service providers and they've been providing a service to, you know, customers, consumers in the local community where I live in North London by uh, delivering produce to their house and by delivering groceries and, and other products, personal hygiene and whatever, um, when, when those customers have had to be self-isolating and protecting themselves at home over the last year. Uh, now, they didn't have to do that, but they, I mean, obviously there's a commercial benefit to doing it, but they've done it for the right reasons. And, you know, it's incredible. You can go into their store. It's a really small store. It's literally, I don't know what the square footage is. Um, it can't be more than literally two or 300 square feet. And it's like <laughs> it's like going into the TARDIS. Uh, you can pick up anything now. It feels like going into Tesco. It's just whatever, whatever, you, whatever you need, they seem to have it. And I think that's a great example of a small business that's recognised the need to broaden their range, you know, broaden how they serve customers in order to maintain the relevance but support the local community at a time of need. And I have no doubt whatsoever that they will be rewarded for that in loyalty in the years to come because you don't forget that, right? They've been there for everyone and become, you know, a great sort of, they really become the kind of beating heart of the community here in Hadleywood where I live. Yeah, but I think they're both really good examples, um, particularly the Timpsons one, which everyone seems to be, or for a while everyone was talking about. Um, so moving on to your your customer experience platform, uh, which is yeah. primarily aimed at retail e-commerce. Um, can you just, I guess, talk us through what it is, why it's needed, and exactly how it works? Sure. So customer service and customer experience. So it's a, it's a customer, it's a combination of customer service and customer experience in terms of what the platform is there to deliver. It's a very, currently customer service is very fragmented. So if you both think of your own experiences, whenever you've had to contact a brand, you know, to talk about an issue, if you like, whether you've had a good experience or bad experience, you know, it could be you went into a restaurant and your meal was undercooked and you know you want some compensation. It could be that you bought something and it fell apart after the first wash or, you know, you bought an electrical product and it didn't work, whatever it was. How do you go and contact that business in the first place? It's a real question because some brands let you contact them uh, over the phone. So they may have a contact center, they may have a head office customer service number. Many don't. Some let you email them. Increasingly, most brands are taking away the ability for customers to email them. Um, they might have live chat. Is that a human being or is that a chatbot? Because chatbots are great if you're a big business with huge volumes of customer service. And you can use the chatbot to, to funnel you know, core customer service issues to the right team. But if you've got an individual issue, you know, for example, if you were coming back from Portugal and you wanted to change your flight from Thursday to Sunday, the chatbot is a complete waste of time. So it's a very fragmented and broken experience. 
And of course, more often than not, when you actually reach somebody in the customer service team, you get the kind of computer says, no, you know, they're not empowered. Unlike Timson, they're not actually empowered to make the right decision. They're not empowered to deliver the right level of service. So they've got to go through a process of going up three or four chains of command, and you might have to wait a week or two as a customer to find out what they're going to do about it. And increasingly, at the end of that, you're, you're told, no, I'm sorry, we can't do anything. What does that do? That drives customers onto social media. As I was mentioning right at the start, you end up going onto Twitter, you go onto Facebook, Instagram, and you complain, you amplify, you shout about the brand. So it's a really, it's a really big issue. And that is because I believe brands treat customer service as a cost center and not a profit center. If you recognize the implications of this and doing this badly, which most businesses do, then and you were focusing on lifetime value, you wouldn't do that. You would do the opposite. You would say, how do we make sure we do all the right things to ensure customers come back? Now, there are some brands that do this better. You know, talk about a business like John Lewis. But John, John Lewis spent £23 million last year, what I would call placating customers. Now, they would say, they would probably say, well, we were doing the right thing. You know, we were, we were resolving issues for customers. But what I would say is, why spend £23 million? Why not spend a fraction of that working out? How do you make sure the problems don't exist in the first place? How do you make sure you have the right channels, you streamline customer service, you make sure you do the right thing so that you mitigate the risk and you, you cut down on, on people having to contact you actually in the first place. So what we do is our platform, um, although it's a separate website called customerserviceaction.com, we set, we're selling the solution as a software as a service uh, s- solution that customers can, that can um, re- retail and other consumer businesses can integrate into their own website. So let's imagine this becomes the gateway for customer service. So as a consumer, if you knew there was one place you could go and this is where you'll receive great service, you wouldn't bother calling the contact center. You wouldn't bother trying to find out whether there was an email that you could contact the brand or live chat. You would just go straight there because this is where your issues are resolved. Now we moderate the first round of uh, communication. And we do that to make sure we remove profanities, to try to make sure we, as much as possible, remove any sort of gamification, because sometimes customers do just try it on. And ultimately, what gets passed through to the brand is a genuine issue. And the benefit of that is it streamlines it for the brand. It means that they can be more efficient. They'll reduce costs because they'll have less issues to deal with. The issues that come through are more genuine, and they do need to do something about it. From a consumer point of view, it's a win-win because they can see that it's an independent platform because it's got our branding on it, but they can also see that the brand, the, the way that the platform, you know, the communication on the landing page is clear to customers that we moderate the first round, but that ultimately it then gets passed to the brand and that they are then empowered to do something about it. So that level of visibility and more importantly, transparency completely turns customer service on, it, on its head because currently it's something that's very hidden. And that's because I think most brands treat customer service as a problem and they just want it to go away, quite frankly. And I think we provide a solution that helps them to do that. And if you think about that, you know, at that touch point, it's a little bit like, you know, the trust pilots and the bizarre voices and the FIFOs, all those ratings and review platforms. We are delivering something similar, you know. So I remember talking to the board of Ted Baker all those years ago about, you know, bizarre voice and saying, you know, this is great. It's going to help us you know, be much more transparent in how we deal with customer issues. 
And I got a lot of negative flack at the time because they were reluctant to put it on the website because they were worried about what happens if somebody gives us a one-star rating or if a product's fallen apart after the first wash. And I would say, well, wouldn't you rather know about that than having them talking about it, you know, in social media? At least then we can do something about it. Um, so I think we're doing something similar, but I think more importantly, our solution is action-orientated um, whereas these ratings and review solutions are not, you know, they're an opportunity for customers to vent, but they're not actually a, a place where you're going to find resolution of your issue. So I think we're going to turn it on its head um, and, and enable brands to deliver much more transparent and engaging service, which will help them reduce costs and help them have a big impact on conversion and sales. Yeah, I, I, I guess the bit I really like about it is, is the removing the emotion side, because one of the big challenges for customer service teams, especially when there's small teams and there's finite resource, is having to deal with things that are noise and not being able to focus on value add. And it's yeah. often the, the biggest challenge for, for like the, uh, the senior leaders who are trying to you know, maximise outputs from these teams. If you can take away the noise and only focus on genuine issues or genuine good, you know, good opportunities, then that, I can see that being a lot of value to the, the staff and they probably enjoy their roles a lot more. Exactly, exactly. But also, so, so I do, I think, there's, I think you're, you're on the money. I think there's a very clear you know, tangible benefit there. But but also on the sales side, I mean, ratings and reviews platforms generally, you know, have a, a 15 to 20% uptick or somewhere, let's say between 10 and 20%, depending which one you're looking at, uptick on conversion because, again, in the perception from other customers is their, their peer reviews. So other people like me have said this, therefore I trust this business. I think the issue there, as you'll probably be aware, there has been a bit of noise in the last year about, again, the gamification of that and whether these reviews are truly authentic. So there's a challenge there that they need to face into there. But, you know, I think that what we are doing will definitely, that level of trust that it, that will engender between the customer and the brand will have a big, big impact on conversion and sales, not only with people who have a customer service issue, but with other customers who become aware of the fact that the brand is now treating this stuff more seriously, they're being open about it, they're being transparent about the issues that they're facing into. You know, I really believe that consumers are very forgiving as long as you're as long as you're open with them. You know, it's the the opposite of the Volkswagen issue. If you're if you come on and you say, look, I know we got an issue, uh, we're not doing everything. The, the, you know, we're not doing certain things the way that we should and we're going to fix it and I'm sorry about that um, you know let's say the CEO comes on and talks about it you know our, our catalytic converters are not doing what they should do you know that openness that transparency that engenders trust even if it's not perfect at the moment the fact that you're open about what's going on what's going wrong and what you're doing about it consumers are very understanding of that it's the it's the hiding behind something either lying or just not addressing an issue that you know exists that causes the frustration in the first place. Yeah, yeah, good point. And, and I believe you're planning to open up the platform for integration, aren't you? Could you explain, like, what is the vision? Like, will you be developing plugins for core platforms like a Shopify or having APIs? How, how might that work for, for retailers and brands? Sure. I mean, basically, the, the plan at the moment is to, or is to provide APIs for different layers of or levels of integration. So... At the very sort of lightest touch point from an integration point of view, you could literally just have us pass through, you know, all of the customer issues once we've sort of uh, screened and done this sort of triaging of, you know, the, the noise and the fake news versus the genuine issues that need to be passed through. 
we just pass them to customer service and, and, and they deal with them down to integrating with different solutions. So we, we can create APIs that would allow you know, them to integrate with Zendesk, with order management, or with a whole suite of other solutions if that's what they wanted. So they can get as they can they can go as granular as they want in terms of being able to tie a customer service issue into a customer order or you know that customer record. It just depends on how far they want to go with it. Um, and that's really the plan at the moment. Um, do you want me to talk about some of the other benefits? Because because one of the things that I haven't probably mentioned that I should talk about is the type of insight that will also be generated from this. So it's not just about reducing costs and enabling them to have a more sort of consolidated approach to customer service and then the upside in the sales sense for customers and the, and the impact of conversion. But we're going to be providing a lot of insight because we capture a lot of structured data around you know, what the issue was, what went wrong, how it made the customer feel, what they would have preferred had happened. You know, in other words, what the business should do to resolve the issue that they've had. And I think that that in turn is going to provide fantastic insight to enable brands to really prioritize what they fix um, and what they get after. Um, because again, if you've got that really consolidated view of where the, the most serious issues are and where you're finding multiple customers are having similar issues, then I think it's a great you know opportunity for businesses, as, as I say, to prioritize their roadmap and, and what they go about resolving in the first place okay and um and what features will be available to retailers and what have you got in your roadmap for the rest of the year so outside of the i mean as i just mentioned you know there there's the the primary feature if you like i think in on the back end is the data and the insight that we'll be generating so they'll be able to see what the major issues are by level of uh, by volume if you get if you like in terms of how many customers have had specific issues, which will provide, I think, a really great level of insight in terms of what they need to fix and what they need to prioritise fixing in order to deliver the right experience and resolve these issues for customers and make sure, you know, that they don't, that, that this doesn't become an ongoing challenge. And I think, you know, going back to what I was mentioning about John Lewis, for example, I think it's a great example of how a business will be able to mitigate the risk of and, and, and reduce the impact of having to shell out you know, a lot of money every year to locate customers because this will provide the type of insight that will help them to fix these issues in the first place. So they shouldn't have to be, uh, you know, compensating customers in the way that they have done in the past. Um, we also plan to provide insight in terms of to help these brands understand where they sit within their category. So there will also be category level insight because although you know, we're looking at businesses integrating our customer service platform into their website on a brand by brand basis. We still have the main website, customerserviceaction.com, where we have, you know, customers coming to our website daily in their droves, you know, adding issues that they're having. Um, but also not, ju not just negative stuff. They also come on and compliment brands where they've had, you know, great experience. So we'll be able to funnel all of that through to a brand on at a category level so they can see how they're performing against other businesses in their space. So I think that from a from an insight point of view, I think that's something they'll feel hopefully quite quite confident about. Um, I mean, really the roadmap for the rest of this year is just is just selling this and getting it off the ground, basically. You know, the core solution is there. We're having some great conversations at the moment and it remains to be seen, you know, whether we end up integrating with smaller businesses to kick off or my in, my instinct is we might end up actually going live with a bigger business, 
um, where we offer exclusivity over a period of time um, and that that becomes the opportunity to then, you know, properly take the brand to market um, and gives us something more substantial to roll out over, you know, over the kind of medium term um, rather than rather than trying to sort of um, bring on board lots of smaller brands and then kind of push up from there. I think that's a much harder way to go. So, but we, we will see. I may be probably wrong with that, but we're having really good conversations at the moment. So fingers crossed, we shall see how things transpire over the rest of the year. Yeah, that's interesting. I like the idea of the integration with customer ticketing solutions like Zendesk. It makes perfect sense because it fits in with existing automation flows and processes and yeah. anything that reduces the need for new process is smoother for adopting. So, yeah, it makes yeah. perfect sense. Um, so if if you've piqued some of our listeners' interests, I'm sure you have, how do they find out more if they want to learn more about how it could be used within their business? Sure. Well, they can they can email me, martin, at thecustomerfirstgroup.com. Um, they can go onto the website, www.customerserviceaction.com. They can contact us through there. They can also get a good view of what the customer journey looks like. Um, obviously, that's our website, so it's not you know it's not exactly how it would appear uh, when we integrate it into uh, a retailer's website. But but it'll give them a really good idea of what the what the flow is, the type of data that we're capturing, and everything, and what the benefits of that would be. But if they want to get in touch, please by all means just drop me an email, Martin at thecustomerfirstgroup.com. Wonderful. Uh, thanks for taking your time to share your knowledge and advice. I always learn something new when I talk to you, so it's good. I've got a few more case studies to reference. Um, and good luck with customer service action. I think it's a great idea, and, and hopefully e-commerce and customer service teams listen will understand the value of it. So thanks for joining us today, Martin. Thank you, James. I'm very, appreciate, very, very appreciative of you and Paul having me on. Thanks a lot. Brilliant. Wonderful. And uh, for those listening, thank you as always. Keep your ears open for next week's episode. We're continuing the customer experience theme and please do subscribe if you haven't already to get an alert as soon as the episodes drop.